Jonah chapter 4. Jonah is a part of the 12 prophets towards the end of the Older Testament. And we're looking at verses 1 to 4. And our assignment again today, we, we kicked this off last Sunday. Heart storms. Would you say that with me? Heart storms. Listen, I had someone tell me a few moments ago, I've got my Mr. Rogers look on today. So I'm going to get you to say some things after me, okay? I do that anyway. Mr. Rogers, I have a lot of esteem for him anyway. Let's all be good neighbors today in the room. Say that with me, will you? Heart storms. Can you say heart storms? I knew you could. Heart storms. Or, here's a subtitle for us as we continue with this today. Jonah and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. All right? Jonah 4, verses 1 to 4 in your Bibles. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Didn't I tell you this, God? I told you. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew. I just knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Or do you have a right, Jonah, to be angry? Jonah and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I want to share with you um, one of my favorite children's stories today as a, as, as a parent. Judith Bjorst, who's a, an American writer known for her humorous observational poetry and for her children's literature, she wrote a personal favorite of mine in 1972. It was a part of her Alexander series. There's a whole series of books on this little boy by the name of Alexander. And in 1972, she wrote the title, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, which has incidentally sold over 2 million copies. And I happen to have one here with me today. How about that? Would you like me to read you a story? This is a great story. It's one of my favorites. I will try to get through it without laughing as I read it to you. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. And now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning... I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, 
Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a back seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend, and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off on the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds. And Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was. Because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist. And Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot. And while we were waiting for my mom to, get, to go get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy. And then when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, I told everybody. No one even answered. So, when we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers, Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But then the shoe man said, we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones but they can't make me wear them. When we picked up my dad at his office, he said I couldn't play with his copying machine, but I forgot. He also said watch out for the books on his desk, and I was careful as I could be except for my elbow. He also said don't fool around with his phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said please don't pick me up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner. 
I hate lima beans. There was kissing on TV. I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain. And I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out. And I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says, some days are like that, even in Australia. <laughs> Isn't that great? Perhaps you can relate. I know I can. I know that's why I find that story so humorous. If you're like me, you can very much relate with that story. How many of you have ever had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Maybe you're having one today. We can relate. We've all had days like Alexander, days when we spill coffee on ourselves, days when we open a nasty email of criticism and complaint, people treat us unfairly and nothing works out the way we want it to, and by the time we fight to commute our way home on the bus or the train or driving through bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, we're just plain mad. Well, this passage at hand in Jonah, chapter 4, that we began studying last Sunday, begins with Jonah thinking that he has experienced one of those kind of days. Jonah and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He is personally embarrassed and theologically scandalized that Yahweh should offer compassion so readily to the Ninevites. Jonah was angry. In fact, he was furious. But not at things or even people. No, he was mad at God. He was ticked at God. He was mad at God for God's actions. He's angry because God is not angry. And so we began unpacking this last Sunday, and we are well into this series. And if you have missed some weeks, please feel free to visit our website and listen, or you can order a copy of the messages as well. We began looking last week as we unpacked this passage at the incredible breakdown and collapse that Jonah has here and the theological problem that Jonah is wrestling with as he's being scandalized by what God is doing and his heart problem. There's a heart problem that Jonah is wrestling with. And so we pick it up. And we also see how Jonah is, he's misusing Scripture. He's misusing the Bible, if you will. When Jonah begins to berate God, he quotes God's own words to him. And they're from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God reveals Himself to Moses and says, 
that he is compassionate and gracious, that he forgives wickedness. Jonah sets God against God, all to justify himself. He reads the Bible selectively, ignoring the latter part of Exodus 34 and verse 7 that speaks of God not leaving the guilty unpunished. So he creates a simplistic picture of God who simply loves everyone without also judgment on evil. He uses the sacred text to justify himself, to justify his inordinate indignation and anger and resentment and bitterness. Beloved, what we see Jonah doing in this is a great, great danger for religious people. Even the most devout Christians. It is possible to use the Bible selectively to justify oneself. How many know what I'm talking about? We can... We can pick verses out of any context in the Bible and use them to our advantage. A couple of examples may be those who dissect Scripture to set it against Scripture in a way that undermines the Bible's authority so that we don't have to obey it then. Or those who misinterpret or rip off certain select proof texts to fashion a case for an angry, vengeful God who always causes, or at least does not prevent, bad things from happening to people. Or further, what about those that do the same to create worldviews? that are not at all congruent or aligned and that resonate with the greater story, the greater narrative of the Scripture story of God, humankind, and all creation. We see this again and again, and perhaps we have even attempted it. Let me go a little further still. Another way of This is the Christian who opens their Bible to simply find themselves justified against those who are not following Christ or Christ followers who do not hold the same views and beliefs and perspectives. Arguments which show how far superior my position is to that of others. Whenever we read the Bible... Loved ones, whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm right, and you're wrong. Whenever we read it to validate ourselves, to feel righteous and wise and superior in our own eyes, we are using the Bible to make ourselves fools. Or worse, after all, The Bible does say that the mark of evil fools is to be wise in their own eyes. In other words, 
if we feel more righteous because we read the Bible, we are misreading the Bible. We are missing its central message. We are reading and studying the Bible rightly only when, by the Holy Spirit, the Bible humbles us, critiques and convicts us, pierces and penetrates our soul, discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our own flaws. For we not only read the Bible, but how many know the Word of God reads us? Hello? You know what I'm saying? The Word of God reads us. What the Bible teaches us about ourselves is all to the effect that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. We have no means of justifying ourselves. We have no right to condemn others and be in the right against them. And that only a gracious act of God alone can save us. Yeah? That is what Scripture teaches. And if we stick to this, reading the Bible is penetratingly useful for us and healthy and life-giving and transformational bringing forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of righteousness in us, the fruit that becomes life-giving to others as well. If we use the Bible to puff up our own egos, dear ones, with our correctness and our righteousness and to denounce all others, then studying the Scripture becomes more a source of Satan's work than God's work. In fact, the one other example we have of anyone quoting and twisting and distorting the Bible to resist God, we actually read some of his words earlier in our Scripture reading together. It was Satan himself. And he attempts to do this against Jesus. It's not a new practice of his. We go back to Genesis and he's doing it with Adam and Eve. Jesus, the Word become flesh. He attempts this with him. Indeed, Jonah's use or misuse or abuse of the Bible is not bringing him joy, but rather taking him to the brink of despair. And he asks God in our passage today, God, take my life. You might as well just take my life. So we see this problem of misusing the Bible, and then this problem of self-righteousness in Jonah. In hindsight, there was a clue to Jonah's future meltdown within his prayer in the great fish. If you look back when we looked at that portion of Scripture, 
there are hints in that prayer that this meltdown was coming. And we see it better now in hindsight as we're looking at this passage in front of us today at hand. Jonah had fled in the first place because he thought God was going to be merciful to Israel's enemies and therefore, in his view, he was going to be unjust. And then in chapter 2, Jonah was confronted with the reality that he himself needed mercy and had no hope if God was completely fair with him and gave only what he deserved. Jonah, if you're saying that people should be given what they deserve, then I've got to give you what you deserve as well. My compassion and my mercy is not just selective for a few and not others. So in the belly of the fish, Jonah received a deeper understanding of his own need of grace. However, at the very end of his prayer, in the belly of the fish, he said that those who cling to idols, do you remember this? Those who cling to idols forfeit God's love. Jonah 2, verse 8. And while this statement is in itself true, What's really going on here when Jonah says this is his self-righteousness is speaking. Jonah had seen some of his own need for grace, but there was still some pride left. Pagans have idols, but not him. That's what Jonah was saying. Pagans are idolaters, but not me. Not Jonah. Yes, of course, he needed mercy, but surely he wasn't on the same level as these pagan Ninevites. Surely he still had some spiritual merit, some measure of superiority. He still had some claims on God. The social psychologist Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, concludes from his research that self-righteousness is the normal human condition. Isn't that interesting? Self-righteousness is our normal human condition. This aligns and fits with the Bible, with what Scripture teaches us about the inevitable human desire to justify and validate oneself through one's performance, through our effort, and therefore to boast in one's righteousness, to boast in our ethnicity, our nationality, our pedigree, our accomplishments, You look at Jeremiah 9. You can look at Romans 3. You you see this. For Jonah, his self-righteousness and his mindset of entitlement had been diminished somewhat in the fish, but not completely destroyed. 
He cried, salvation comes only from the Lord. Yet also, in effect, he said, but I'm not like those lost, awful pagans. And that is why he was still susceptible to the spiritual breakdown and crash and burn and heart storm that was occurring in him here in Jonah 4 after God has shown Nineveh mercy at the end of chapter 3. He still felt, Jonah did to some degree, that mercy had to be earned. Mercy had to be deserved. And they certainly hadn't hadn't earned it, and they definitely didn't deserve it. So we learn from Jonah that understanding God's grace and being changed by it always requires a process. Beloved, please hear this because this speaks into each and every one of our lives, mine and yours. God's grace and being changed and transformed by it always requires a process in us. It's a long, obedient, patient journey with successive stages. How many know what I'm talking about? How many of you are on the journey today? We're all on that journey. God's transforming grace is not an overnight trip. We all can relate with Jonah and this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day he's having. God's transforming grace cannot happen in a single cathartic or catastrophic experience like being swallowed by a fish. The fish didn't spit Jonah up. Bingo, he's completely transformed. Totally new man. No. We're seeing that here. There was some change. But the work of grace was obviously still happening and in need of happening. Are you seeing this? To illustrate, perhaps this will help us. Currently in our region, as you may know, there is rebuilding and upgrading going on along the Lougheed Highway, Highway 7, that is taking place from the mission area through Maple Ridge. And it's quite an extensive process. But it is partly so because of the fact that the highway actually runs through floodplains. And those floodplains, of course, entail quite swampy stretches along certain lengths of the highway. And so the preparation of the ground, and I'm not a civil engineer. My grandfather told me that I should have been a civil engineer. I remember as a boy, him asking me, what do you want to do? Well, I think I'm going to be a pastor. Oh, you should be a civil engineer. There's no money in pastoring. There's lots of money in civil engineer work. I'm not a civil engineer. 
But I understand that the preparation of the ground and the excavation and the putting down of the pilings and the erecting of retaining walls and all that's involved, all to establish a solid foundation, getting down to the very bedrock so that the highway will not wash away over time. And it's a lengthy process. And with the advancement of technology today, civil engineers are able to obtain a fairly certain solid read on what is required in order for that to be done. But sometimes the process can still involve repeated efforts, going deeper. Are you getting the picture here? The work of God's grace in our lives. Jonah's heart was like that. Your heart's like that. My heart's like that. Requiring repeated efforts. And God is so patient and so good and so kind and merciful with us. Going deeper. Every time it seemed that Jonah had taken God and His grace to the very bottom, it turned out he needed to go even deeper. What does it mean to get to the bedrock in one's heart? If you say, I'll obey you, Lord, if you give me that, then that is the non-negotiable, and God is just a means to that end. We looked at this last week. God you give me X, I'll do Y. And you fill in the blank, whatever X is for you. And that becomes the non-negotiable. That becomes the thing that we cherish more than God. It is more foundational to us, that. And our happiness than God is. Beloved, as long as there is something more important than God in my heart, and in yours, you and I will be like Jonah, both fragile and self-righteous, insecure. Whatever it is, and you know what it is for you, I know what it is for me. Whatever it is, it will create pride and an inclination to look down upon those who do not have it. And it will also create fear. And it will also create, as I just said, insecurity. It is the basis for your happiness. So therefore, if anything threatens that, you will be overwhelmed with anger and anxiety and despair. And this is what we see happening in Jonah. Jonah cherished his nation and the security and the well-being and the power and the privilege of his nation than he cherished God. And when he saw that being threatened, he was having a heart storm going on. And the same happens for you and me, whatever that is. Hello? 
it's awfully quiet in here right now. You can't say amen, say ouch, or something. Or We all have it. To reach heart bedrock with God's grace is to recognize all the ways that we make good things. Good things in and of themselves. Not necessarily evil things. Good things. In fact, often, more often it's good things than it is outright evil things. We make them into idols. And we bow down and we worship in an effort to save ourselves. It is to instead finally recognize that we live wholly and entirely and completely by God's grace alone. Grace plus nothing. Then we begin serving the Lord, not in order to have it our way or get things from Him, but just for Him alone. How many know there's a difference? For His own sake, just for who He is, for the joy of knowing Him, delighting in Him, loving Him, being loved by Him, and becoming like Him. For no other reason. He's not a means to an end in our lives. He is the beginning and the end. The center and the circumference. The first and the... He's, it's, it's all about Him. It's not Him in order for me to get this or that or go there. It's Him. Loving Him. Knowing Him. Him loving me. Becoming like Him. Walking with Him. When we've reached bedrock of heart with God's grace, it, with His perfect love, begins to drain us slowly but surely of both self-righteousness and fear. The work of God's grace. Like those excavators, those civil engineers, going deeper, going deeper, clearing away, draining away, removing all of that which prevents there from being a solid bedrock upon which to build. God, in His grace, seeks to get down to the bedrock of our hearts. And it's a process. And it's a painful process sometimes. It's a difficult process. It requires us letting go of things, those it's, those things that are the real thing we cherish, letting go of those things. Jonah's death wish is greeted by God with almost complete silence. It's interesting. God quietly and gently rebukes Jonah with the briefest question. God's so brilliant at this. With the briefest question. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's just three words. He says in verse 4 of our passage, Is it good for you, Jonah, to burn with such anger? 
anger's not wrong. If you love something and it is threatened or harmed or endangered, anger is the proper and appropriate response, yeah? But such anger, God says. A certain kind of anger. Is it good for you to burn with such anger? Inordinate, gratuitous anger of self-righteousness and fear. That kind of anger. It's a sign that the thing Jonah loves is not God, but a counterfeit God. A counterfeit God. Would you say that with me? A counterfeit God. He is inordinately committed to his culture before God. His ethnicity before he is God. His nation. Those things are his God, his counterfeit God. And God, Yahweh, will not have it. So it is that we see Jonah's heart storm going on here. God will have to deal with this idolatry if Jonah is ever to get the infinite peace of resting in God's grace alone. Heart storms. Say that with me. Heart storms. Perhaps you're having one today, right now. Your image of God is being challenged. It is an image that is not truly Yahweh. It's an image of your own creation. It's a golden calf God fashioned from the offerings of your emotional, religious jewelry, if you will. It has its footings in unsound theology, in a low and in a small vision of who God really is. And God, by His grace, comes as He is doing with Jonah. He comes to you and me seeking to dismantle that to deconstruct that, to demolish your illusions of Him. So you're disillusioned with God. You're disillusioned because God is removing your illusions of Him. Your picture of Him was not truly Him. It was your own creation. And He's doing all of this in your heart right now in order to transform you by His Spirit in the renewal of your mind, changing the way you think about Him, about His grace, about His nature, about His ways. God, in this way, is passionately pursuing us. You. Me. His love is relentless. His love toward you is relentless. We sang it earlier. He's unstoppable. He will not be stopped in His pursuit of your heart and mine. He is determined to have us completely. That He 
might bring us to a place that we might know Him truly. Yeah? That we might know Him truly. Would you stand together with me as Frank and the team come? That we might know Him truly. Perhaps in the middle of whatever heart storm you are facing right now, as we stand here together today on this third Sunday of Lent, and you think, what is going on? What, what is, what, what, what's with this? And maybe you're even angry the way Jonah was angry. You're angry at God. You're, you're disappointed. You're upset. Because God's not holding up to your image of Him. And, and that's the problem. It's your image of Him. How we see God makes all the difference in our lives. And if our vision of Him is grounded on the solid bedrock of His Word, on solid theology, in other words, a solid study and understanding of who He is, His nature, His ways, His character, His attributes, Unless it's on those grounds, our vision of Him, we have a faulty vision of who He is. And when stuff happens in our lives, as it does persistently, even now, in this coronavirus day that we're living in, our image, our own image and creation of Him gets rattled because it cannot stand up. Only He... Only He as He truly is, is unshakable. And He seeks to bring us in all of our hearts to a place of laying hold of a vision that is great and immense and deep and marvelous and brilliant. Who He truly is.